So before today's episode, I'd like to give a little bit of a trigger warning, because I am a caring type, and I don't want anyone to get upset. But this, in this episode, I am deviating from talking about Qigong and so on and so on. And I am discussing uh, politics and Trump and Biden. And I'm being a little bit harsh at times. So this is my <laughs> official trigger warning. If you're easily upset or you don't want to be upset, then go listen to a different podcast and give this one a miss. Because I wouldn't want to upset anybody, I don't think. Not too much anyway. I want to talk a little bit today about uh, humor and its place in, uh, in the internal arts, specifically in uh, meditative arts or spiritual arts or something. I mean, if people are defining their practice as something that's elevating the character or seeking for union, some deeper part of themselves or something like that, the kind of people I call cultivators, then I think that um, they should try to understand the nature of humor a little bit and its place, finding something funny. What, what role does this have in the arts? Should we be deadly serious, you know, at all times about everything? And, and is it wrong to laugh about some things? I mean, um, these are questions that we should explore, perhaps. The first thing I would say before anything is that if you are serious about everything, like literally everything, and you don't find any humor in any event at all, you've already lost. You really have. Like, that is it's one of the most important qualities for a person to have. I mean. If we, even if we look at you know the two sort of people you would associate with Taoism as a tradition, the two sages, Lao Tzu and Zhuangzi. I mean, Zhuangzi, you know, 50% of the sages. I mean, he laughs at everything all the way through. It's completely based in humor. Many of the stories um, of the Eight Immortals are fairly humorous, and and Zhuangzi has the ability to laugh about things such as death and and subjects like this. I mean, there's there's very few taboos with him with regards to his writings, you know, or how he views anything. And there, there's a lesson in there, you know, and I sometimes get people asked, you know, what are the key character traits that somebody should seek in these arts, you know? Well, first of all, this is a common question. It's a question that surprises me because ultimately I think character traits are quite individual um, and they will evolve and change as you practice, certainly. But if there are any two character traits that we should try to understand, perhaps it's those two that are epitomized by the two key teachers of Taoism, Lao Tzu and Zhuangzi. And okay, there's millions of other teachers and, and so on and so on. But we can't argue that these two are not the, you know, the archetypes of the tradition, definitely. Whether they're real or not, who knows? But they're definitely archetypes of what we'd associate Taoism to be. Now, Lao Tzu represents the idea of humility primarily humility and wisdom, and we'll explore those maybe another time. But Zhuangzi, he represents irreverence, really, doesn't he? And humor, you know, he's wise as well, but everything is done in a very comical fashion, a very backwards fashion, it's very contradictory, everything is very amusing to him, and he, he takes the piss out of everybody, constantly. He's very British, actually. The humor's a little outdated, you know, you wouldn't make a, you wouldn't make a comedy film out of it now, it'd be like watching the the Three Stooges and finding it funny these days. Normally, humor has evolved past that stage, but definitely, it's quite British in its humor, which is quite wry and a little bit like gallows humor. People might call it dark humor, black humor, something like that. And I know gallows humor is universal around the world, but definitely a lot of English humor is based upon it, from what I can see. Now, uh, this kind of humor that he's talking about has, or he's demonstrating, has a place. It definitely has a place. It, it kind of arises automatically anyway from people once they get to a certain stage in their training, definitely. Um, but it also has a function. So, first of all, maybe um, 
I'll explain a little bit, kind of the idea about where humor has its place is, is largely to do with the fact that every emotion that you experience, every feeling, every movement of your mind has an energetic quality to it. And, and some people might not think of it in that way, but when they actually think of examples, it's definitely true. We know that in Chinese medicine, your emotions influence your qi, the vital energy of your body. And we know that certain types of emotional responses create different movements. For example, anger tends to cause things to rise and tighten, doesn't it? You get very sort of uptight. And we can't argue that people who live in an uptight, tense, kind of hypertensive, I suppose, kind of state aren't very tight. They are. You can see it when they move. Their chi is locked. Their tendons are tight. People who, who suffer very much with depression, everything tends to sink in and close around the chest, doesn't it? And, and anybody who's done any self-observation work, where you listen to your body, you pay attention to your body as it goes through various emotional states, especially a very um, pronounced emotional state, a very visceral experience of it, you'll notice that there are different sensations and feelings as your energy copies the quality um, of those emotions. You know, the body will tighten, the body will slacken, the body will sink, and so on and so on. Much of Chinese medicine's discussion of the emotions was about this. What happens to the qi? How does it move? So the other time the qi moves is every time you have a thought. And that's like, again, a whole topic of conversation for another day, isn't it? Like, um, you know, the kind of energetics behind the nature of the sense of self that we're trying to sort of see through the illusion of in the internal arts. And anybody who's gone into alchemy will, will start studying that as long as they go beyond the sort of rather shallow stage of Jing Qi Shen and actually try to understand what is happening through these systems, you know. How do we use this to, to our advantage or to our benefit or to the benefit of others or whatever, depending upon your art. Now, every time that something creates a very consolidated um, thought or experience or something, it creates kind of a density of qi. And, and this is how thoughts or things anchor into us. This is kind of the energetics of it. So if you've ever been told something that's really shocking and heavy, when we use that word, don't we? That's a heavy experience or heavy. Why? Because it has a time. That kind of dense, unpleasant experience. What it will do is it will anchor into your system and become a stronger part of who you are. So that the denser the experience, the more that contributes to the sense of self, which you're then going to identify with. So ultimately, that density is going to be negative for the ability for you to perceive beyond who you are to the core of your being. So that's a problem. We don't want that, especially as cultivators. We don't want to accumulate all this dense energy, all these dense emotions, all these dense feelings, these dense experiences. We don't want to be weighed down by them, either mentally or emotionally or karmically. It doesn't really matter what level you're talking about. We don't want the weight. So what is the key emotion that, that um, they realized or the key reaction to something that counters this? It's humor. Because if there's any movement of chi within, the, sorry, if there's any movement of chi that's, that's useful, it's something that expands and dissipates and kind of dissolves connection to. And that's what humor does. That's what humor does. I don't know if people know that energetically, but every time you laugh, <laughs> out it goes. Like it expands everything away. And that's different from you know, manic laughter or something. I'm not saying you should be like, you know, the Joker from Batman when he loses it or something. But it, it, there is like a, a dissolving quality so that things cannot anchor to your system. Now, what this means is that if someone is confronted by something and, uh, and here's an event, wow, it's created this consolidated thought form and, and there it is, here's my experience of this. And, and the experience is only created by the movement of mind anyway. But then once I start to anchor into that, then all of a sudden, boom, there's another layer on me. There's another thing that, you know, I'm going to mistakenly believe 
it's something that is worth distorting my view of reality. Ultimately, that's what it's going to do, and that's going to be a problem. But at the same time, when somebody receives that event and, and finds something uh, humorous in it, ultimately something light-hearted to make the heart light, to make it float, to make it away from dense, much of the um, anchoring of that effect is dissipated. It really is. This is why, I mean, the body knows this. The human body knows this. This is partly where gallows humor or dark humor comes from. When something happens and, and you laugh it off, then, then this creates this kind of dissolving of connection to the system. And this is why we, we even see people in very difficult, stressful situations, people in war zones, perhaps, and things like this that develop a sense of, of humor. I've met soldiers. I've never been in a war but I've met soldiers who, who've spoken about the kind of dark humor that develops there. And some people say that's just a coping mechanism. Well, yeah, sure, but nothing wrong with a coping mechanism. And, and why is it a coping mechanism? Well, I don't know about the psychology, but the energetics of it would be all of these dense mental and emotional experiences are anchoring into the body. When you laugh, that expansion kind of negates a part of it so that you can still experience that negative event, but it's not clinging to you so much. It's not sticking to you. You can, you can kind of move through it in a, in a light-hearted light fashion. And that makes humor one of the greatest tools. And people have known this for a long time. And we only have to look at comedians. Comedians are the people that can discuss some of the most difficult topics, some of the most taboo. Well, they used to be able to. <laughs> now it's getting harder because of all the censorship. But definitely they used to be able to discuss some of the most taboo topics in a way that that I think was beneficial, because you could have a room full of people or an audience that maybe wouldn't even tackle that topic, you know. They'd be like, hmm, can't listen to this, this is a bit difficult. But the comedian could present it to them in such a way that is almost more light-hearted, like it kind of dissolves that connection to make it easier to process. And, and there's a lot of wisdom in comedy. Not all comedy, not all comedy, some of it's terrible, isn't it? If you, I, I'm a big fan of comedy, and I used to spend a lot of time in comedy clubs, and this is my <laughs> this is my easy way to tell if the comedian's going to be good. If the comedian comes on stage and the first thing they do is they try to ask where you're from and make a joke about where they're from. Wee, I'm from Wigan. Let me tell you a joke about Wigan or something like that. You know they're going to be crap because that's all they got. Generally, the best comedians are the ones who come on who don't rely on location-based observational humor to start with. But that's a side topic. Maybe I'm over-scrutinizing comedy. But... One thing I've noticed from all the time in comedy clubs is the sheer um, skill of which the comedians have at talking about things that are taboo, death, suffering, disease, politics, religion, abuse, like just the sheer ability that they have to do that. Now, the, the, the benefit of that is that often those people in that room can listen and then consider those topics, sometimes to a very sort of deeper level than they would have done before in a way that's not damaging to them because it's not clinging. It's not like someone's come on stage and heavily started talking about these topics in a negative fashion. You know, and occasionally somebody gets what we call triggered. You know, somebody gets triggered. Now there's, and that's a problem, of course, because nobody wants people to get triggered and that's not very nice. We don't want them to have that emotional reaction. But it's gonna happen sometimes. It's kind of unavoidable. There's two types of triggered as well, isn't there? There's triggered because you have an unconscious trauma attached to something, and that's very unfortunate when that happens. And you know, there's a case of putting your foot in it, which I do quite often, let's be honest, that, that somebody becomes triggered because that's touched something um, unconscious, something they didn't know, something they didn't know they had a reaction to, something they didn't know was a problem inside them. That's an unconscious trigger. And when that happens, that's very unfortunate. And I think that the compassionate and sensible thing to do 
um, is then try to work around that topic with someone and explore it with them and see if we can find um, a beneficial way that that person can move past that because nobody wants to carry that because if you've got that unconscious trigger it's just going to get set off all the time so yeah we want to work through that that's the kind thing to do try and explore that and get to the bottom of it and maybe humor can be a tool for that as well but done in a sensible fashion but then there is the other kind of triggered the other kind of triggered is conscious triggering and a lot of people have this right now and conscious triggering or what I'm calling conscious triggering I don't know if that's an actual term but what I call it is when people carry that trigger knowing that it's there. And not only do they know it's there, often they have eight or nine of these conscious triggers all lined up that are there at the front of their mind. And what that conscious trigger is doing, it is waiting for an excuse to be annoyed. And there it is. Oh, that person made that joke. Boom, there it is. My conscious trigger is set off. And ultimately, if you carry around conscious triggers, largely what you carry around is self-righteousness that is strengthening the sense of self so that you feel more empowered in yourself because you have been triggered at some kind of injustice, but ultimately what it's doing is it's creating weight for you. Those conscious triggers are a form of density that are holding you back from seeing through the veil of the full sense of self back to the truth of who you are. So who should not carry conscious triggers? Cultivators. Cultivators shouldn't carry conscious triggers. They definitely should not. So um, I don't have conscious triggers, definitely not. I might have some unconscious triggers. I don't know by the very nature of them. <laughs> I'm, I'm unconscious of them. But there's no conscious triggers. There's nothing that's sitting at the front of my identity and I'm waiting, oh, he said something racist, oh, he said something against me, or something like that. They're not there because I refuse to carry that weight. I really refuse to. And as for all the people who then say, you know, because I've, I've spoken this before, and people say, oh, well, you've had a very comfortable existence. And you've you don't know my life. You don't know my life. You really don't. And do you need to know my life? No, it's not important. It's, not, it's none of your business. And also, I don't really carry anything from that anyway. But I wouldn't say that I have a particularly easy existence. But at the same time, I'm not going to carry that round with myself because I don't care, because it's irrelevant. And do you know why it's irrelevant? Because it's funny. That's why. This is ultimately what it comes down to. And this is where humor becomes um, such an important part of the process. If you are a humorless twat, <laughs> then you're going to struggle on this path because you're often going to face things that are uncomfortable. We only have to look at life. Life is difficult. Life is uncomfortable. Life is problematic. Anytime you interact with people, they bring you a bloody problem. Have you noticed? They bring you a, a difficulty. And what are you going to do? Are you going to um, you know, carry the weight of that situation and end up in a world full of where you're always in a state of conflict or upset or hurt or fighting some kind of perceived injustice, which is normally just a, you know, in my experience, just a misunderstanding, actually. And when everyone communicates, most of those kind of things disappear a little bit. Apart from the exceptions, you do get idiots, of course. Um, but I think they're the minority, and they, I think, mean idiots are the minority. I think people perceive a lot more mean idiots than they really are. I think actually what there are is people that just don't communicate that well, but there you go. Maybe I'm one of those. Maybe I'm one of those. Who knows? What am I talking about? Anyway. Anyway, yeah, if you're going to like, you know, go out and experience people and experience difficulties, there's going to be these situations that's going to be a reaction, a thought form's going to come up, which is normally from habitual programming, somewhere deep inside of you. You're running on autopilot, and at that stage, boom, another form of density has been created. Now, the funny thing about mind, if you like, I want to use that word, is it likes these forms of identity, right? Because the stronger a sense of identity, 
the stronger your mind is able to constantly justify the nature of its existence and the reason why your awareness should be focused upon it. This is why it's a problem for cultivators. It, it really is. It really is a problem for cultivators because we want to get past that. We don't want that density. Is it okay for normal people? Normal people, non-cultivators, whatever. Um, yeah, it's probably okay if they're in the kind of lifestyle where they're going to fight injustice or something or, or whatever. I don't know. But I still think it makes them unhappy. I still think it does. Now, herein lies the problem. Like, if, um, if you... If you do react to things from a position of humor, does that mean that you don't place importance upon anything? No. No, it doesn't mean that. And I think this is where people get confused because my default reaction to things is just to poke fun at it or something like that, um, generally. And sometimes publicly, sometimes in my head, because I also have a little bit of diplomacy when I'm in public. Um, but that doesn't mean that I'm not able to see the gravity of that event. I'm talking about weight again, aren't we? Weight, gravity. I'm not, it doesn't mean I'm not capable of seeing the, the gravity in that event and how serious it is. Definitely not. Um, I think that in some ways I'm more capable of ta tackling a difficult situation than many other people are. So because of the fact that I can see it through the lens of, of humor on some level, it is a gallows humor, it's a dark humor, but it dissolves that tether so it doesn't tend to burn me out. So, for example, I worked in social services, I worked in uh, child services, I worked in psychiatric health, I worked in the homeless centers, I worked in drug and alcohol, I worked somewhere else, I can't remember. I worked in all these different fields. When you see people at their, their, their lowest, at their most difficult, their most struggling, especially child services and things like that, and you see some very difficult things. And what I saw around me was professionals becoming burnt out, left, right, and center, because of the sheer emotional weight that they were under. You know, and, and obviously that's difficult, but I never got burnt out. Maybe I didn't do it for that long. I was doing it for um, only a few years, but it never got to me, never got to me. But that doesn't mean that I wasn't capable of assisting those people and being there for them. If anything, I think I was there for them better than some of, not all, some of them had a lot more experience than me, but better than a lot of the other people. And I was more capable of listening. And that's a great skill that a lot of people don't have because part of the reason was when I was confronted with their often harrowing situation, um, I didn't laugh at them, obviously, <laughs> you know, definitely not. They were in a lot of duress. But if anything, I could see the ridiculousness of the situation. And I'll get to the nature of ridiculousness in a minute. And as soon as I was perceived and confronted with that, actually, it dissolved a lot of the connection. There was way less weight into me, which means I wasn't constantly reflected on my own sort of empathetic experience of living this person's suffering, which meant I was more capable um, of listening to them, more useful to them as a professional person, plus a lot better at sustaining my energy levels and my mental clarity and not burning out. This is what people don't understand. Um, there's a song by Carla, I don't know many quote songs, but it's popped into my head, that you can't feel bad enough to save a single person on this planet. You can't. <laughs> it's not possible. You know, and, and that always springs to mind with these things. don't normally get my things from songs, but there you go. No, it's a good song. Mm. Ridiculousness. What do I mean by this? Like, ultimately, maybe I don't think people understand what humor is because I think a lot of people for humor, and I'm not even that funny, but you know, I'm very unfunny, but I, don't, I think what people think humor is is you mocking somebody. They associate it with bullying or something. You know, ha ha, you fell over and hurt yourself or something. And that's. That's not right. Like to, to enjoy the suffering of another person and find that a form of amusement, that is not correct. 
But at the same time, there's another form of humor that is really the humor I'm talking about that is based on the sheer ridiculousness of the situation. Now, for me, this is the kind of humor that's dissolving. Now, the only time that kind of humor is correct to arise in you, look at the ridiculousness of everything, is if you can also apply it to yourself as well. So I can honestly say that when I look at myself and I look through the movements of my mind, my thoughts, my emotions, reactions, my, even my desires and my um, aspirations in life, I suppose, I see them as ridiculous. I really do. I see myself as a ridiculous human being. Many people who met me would agree, but I, I do. I think I'm ridiculous. Now, that doesn't mean that I feel bad of myself. My self-esteem is not damaged. My self-esteem is actually very good. Um, I enjoy my life at the same time, but the two are not mutually dependent. I still feel that I'm ridiculous. Why am I ridiculous? Because I'm a monkey. I'm an ape. That's why I'm ridiculous. And all right, when I've written that before, I've had people underneath go, no, you're a perfect spiritual being that has the potential to touch, you know, God. Yeah, okay, true. That's all true as well. But I'm also an ape. I'm trapped in an ape's body. I'm a hairless ape with very few <laughs> actual needs. You know, my actual needs in life are what? I need enough food to sustain me. Better shelter's good in case it rains or something like that. Water, that's all right. And then <laughs> everything else is just piled on top. And okay, maybe you have other needs. Maybe you have a need for connection. Maybe you have a need for adventure. Maybe you have a need for being in nature. I don't know, whatever you have. Like you have all these needs. Maybe you've got a need to support people. Maybe you've got dependents. Of course, these are all, all needs that are laid on top, but maybe we could hierarchy the needs. And then everything beyond that, it's just kind of daft, kind of ridiculous. And if you, if you were to list all of the components of your mind, for a start, it would be an impossible task because there's so many of them. But if you could list all of those components, the vast majority of them are purely self-created, societally created, or given to you by someone else, and they're ridiculous. You are a hairless ape, that's it. And that's what I see when I look at myself aside from all the spiritual potential or whatever that human beings might have that people like to cling on to. But even then, that's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? The whole concept of enlightenment's kind of daft or whatever. Like, it's, it's all just a great cosmic joke. Now, because of that, what it means is I'm able to look at the rest of the world and see it in a very similar fashion. I see it in a very similar fashion, ridiculous. But at the same time, other people don't see it as ridiculous and they're suffering because of it quite often. I, would, I, I can safely say that my ability to see the world as ridiculous does mean that I do suffer a lot less than if I took life really seriously. I really do. Great difficulties and upheavals have happened in my life and can happen in my life. And it doesn't bother me. It's okay. It's no problem. I just deal practically with what needs to and make sure everyone else is okay and not worry too much. And I don't carry that baggage because ultimately the very fact that I was worried about it is kind of stupid. And what does that do? It makes me laugh. And there's a universal experience that people have when they awaken. I'm not claiming to be awakened before I get the emails about how arrogant I am or something like this underneath. But when people do awaken, it's always described in a set or experience awakening, even just for a glimpse. They laugh. The description is there. They laugh. They laugh. Why? It's not like everyone achieves awakening and then gets really angry. Or everyone achieves awakening. He never is. And then... Saint blah, 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 achieved realization of godhood and knew that he had to take a placard and make his views known. It doesn't get said. Universally, what they will do is burst out laughing and become um, fairly cheerful and full of humor because they see through the illusion and see the stupidity of the whole thing and see that it's daft, that we've created this whole world and paradigm of mental fucking nonsensory 
that we tend to live within. It's crazy. And if you can see the world like that, everything becomes more pleasant. Does that mean that you don't act upon something that needs acted upon? Not at all. Definitely not. I think that is a strange view to have. If I see someone suffering, I'm still very capable of helping that person because I don't want that person to suffer. But do I think that that person is stupid and laugh at them? No, not at all. Do I think the very nature of the world that has enabled someone to be put into that position is ridiculous? Yeah, I think it's ridiculous. I think it's a joke that human beings would create such a thing. Does it make me angry? No, not at all. So here's a counter. Like People say, well, if you don't get angry, why do you do something? If you don't get hurt, if you don't get upset, you're not going to act on it. I would return that question to you. Why do you need to be angry or upset about something to do something about it? <laughs> why? Why can't you just do something about it without having some kind of negative thing that's affected you? That ultimately means if you require an anger or sad, angry or sad reaction, ultimately, to me, it, this is going to sound harsh, but it makes you quite self-centered because it makes it about you. It means you're only helping somebody, you're only dealing with some injustice because it makes you feel bad. That is very self-centered and the epitome of what we're trying to move past in the spiritual arts because there's supposed to be a natural um, ability or desire, desire is the wrong word, isn't it? A natural tendency, <laughs> habit of assisting people without requiring feeling that suffering within yourself. That is the root and the epitome of the spiritual nature of compassion. How is that achieved? Well, you have to dissolve the weight that is impacting upon you. And I would say humor is a great tool to, to deal with that. Does that humor come from within you? Maybe later, but until then, maybe not. You know, maybe you have to, to find some kind of gallows humor. Or I've seen people actually who have this kind of gallows humor um, or have this real response to things, but then quell it because they know they're not supposed to. Um, you know, I'm supposed to take this seriously because my friends take it seriously and da 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 and consequently they make themselves very, very unhappy. But that's not doing anyone any good whatsoever. So I recently, um, you know, I quite often get myself in trouble with this, especially with non-British people because a lot, not all, but a lot of British people understand where I'm coming from because you only have to look at our humour to see that it's very much like that. The programme of spitting image, um, if you know what that is, it was in the 80s and now it's sort of come out again, I think is great. And what it is, it's humour. It's a comedy programme based upon politics. And what they do is they take the piss out of politicians on both sides, left and right, doesn't matter. They mock them. Um, and it, it's very British. And whether you like the humour or not, I mean, sometimes it's not that funny. But it's, I think it's a great tool because it, it's, it enables people. And certainly when I was younger, everybody really loved it. Or a lot of people did in, in the 80s. I think it was the 80s or 90s. I can't remember. Because it enabled people to look at very difficult situations politically that were going on at the time around the Conservative and Labour Party and the way they were interacting and what, it, what was happening with our society in a way that was quite dissolving because it was almost, almost became like a secondary form of the news, if you like, because here you were finding out what was going on. But through the lens of humour, dark humour, yeah, of course. But it enabled you to not develop those layers, develop that density within yourself that is problematic because the more density you have, the more self-identification you have with that, the more you become self-righteous and kind of lost in this kind of quagmire of left, right, good, bad, and stuff like that, which is, is ultimately no good for anybody. It really isn't. And right now we see this with the American uh, politics, because obviously Trump and Biden have been going at it for a while. Um, well, sort of have. Both going at it as much as two elderly <laughs> gentlemen ever, ever do. It's hardly the most sort of um, exciting 
UFC match, is it, between two 75-year-old men in the ring. They're just as likely to fall asleep and wet themselves as anything else. But this is what we've had. We've had this sort of situation going on, and America is, is torn between these two parties, and, it? and it's been divided into red and blue almost, which is red and blue is almost like football teams, isn't it? It's gone a bit like that. And there's so much anger and hatred, and it's spilling over into other countries as well because American politics tends to be on the world scene, and you're seeing this divide. And I've had English people. It surprised me at first. I've had British people asking me, do you support Trump or, or Biden? Or who was before that Clinton, wasn't it? Because it was a while ago, you know, when people started asking it. First, I did like a double take, and I'm like, I'm not American. I, I didn't realize, you know, that, that that was even relevant. Like, what does it matter who I was? I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not American. That's their politics. But then I realized, actually, that because America is so central, which largely is because of Hollywood, it's because we're always watching media from America, so it becomes a central place, that it kind of became the hallmark for whether you were left or right or pro this or pro that or pro fascism, anti-fascism, whatever it is or, or whatever. So people were using it as a marker for who you, who you are. And this was, to me, problematic because what, gradually what's happened is a loss, of, a loss of recognition of the humor around the whole situation. And, and I, I got myself in trouble because I would just mock um, either side, and th and this is this is because <laughs> I think it's funny. I think it's really funny. Um, I don't think that the unhappiness people experience around it is funny, not at all, because it goes back to that idea of ridiculousness. The very concept of our political system in the Western world is just ridiculous. It's really daft, and the fact that people are starting to hate each other over it is really daft as well. And the other thing I got as well, I thought was funny, was people were saying that they didn't like my political persuasion, my party. Because they, they always assume that you have to have no, you know, you almost have to have worship of the person in charge or, or the person in charge of your party. So, for example, I mocked Biden. Now, why did I mock Biden? Well, because it's kind of funny that he's always got his nose buried in a child's hair. It's funny slash creepy, depending on how you read about it. So I made a joke saying, oh, look, he's got his nose glued to a woman's hair again or something. It wasn't funny, you know. I apologize for the bad humor. But I made a mock it. And then what I got was anger saying, oh, you fucking Trump supporter. No, not at all. I would equally put a picture up of mock Trump because he's a large orange gerbil with a toupee. Like, both of these people are kind of ridiculous. I would equally mock any of the people in those situations. But what am I mocking? Is it their policies? Is it their, what they stand for? Not really. I mean, I think if you have a feeling towards a political persuasion, a political stance, then you should vote. Of course you should. Um, I don't think you should demonize the other team because actually um, what happens within one side is they present the opposite side's argument as a very simple, is it selfish or is it selfless? And actually it's far more complex than that. Um, nobody really likes to think they're selfish, I don't think. Maybe they do. I would assume that's an unhealthy thing. And actually it's a very nuanced argument that the media has turned into a very black and white thing. So if anybody is to be demonized in this situation, it's the media, not the political parties. Um, and I'm not talking about fake news or something. I just believe that um, you know everything is stripped down to very, very simple. It's dumbed down to a point where you can't even see that maybe there's a perspective from the other side of the argument that has kind, some kind of sense behind it. And I think that's a terrible shame. But there you go. It's still kind of funny <laughs> that that happens. It's kind of ridiculous. So. What I think is ridiculous about the whole thing is that you can't have any nuance with regards to who someone is. Um, so you have to completely work 100% loyalty to that person. 
like there's some kind of God or deity. And I, weird. So if, if you vote Biden, you can still mock Biden. If you vote Trump, you can still mock Trump or the ridiculousness of whom they are as a person. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't. You can mock them as much as you would mock yourself. And maybe that, maybe people can't, maybe they take it all really seriously because they take themselves too seriously. Maybe they take themselves too seriously because they're quite fragile on the inside and they can possibly laugh at themselves because it would cause pain. If that's the case, that's a shame. I don't like that. That's quite bad. I don't like the fact that people feel that bad about themselves if that's the reason. So I think I blame Marvel. That's what I blame. I blame Marvel. And that sounds daft, doesn't it? Now we're getting into conspiracy theories. Ah, I don't think it's deliberate or anything like that. But I think people watch, I mean, we can't deny that Marvel movies are really influential and stuff like that. I think we've watched too many movies where someone comes in and saves us. And everyone wants a savior. So they vote for the savior. You shouldn't vote for the savior. Definitely not. You shouldn't. Save yourselves. Like, definitely save yourselves. If you, like, if you think a party's political persuasions are going to help you in some way, I mean, all they're going to do is they're going to move like this. It's not going to be a big change. It's always like that, isn't it? A little nuance from the status quo, and then the status quo continues. And then because we amplify everything within our mind through a state of delusion, we think that these little swings are swings over here and swings over here and swings over here, but they're not the little, you know. But if, if you want to adjust the, the path, go ahead. Like, I think it's good. And I think it's normal that that's what happens. And if we swing left, we swing right, we swing left, we swing right over different periods. And that kind of keeps us on some kind of path or whatever, as far as I can see. But I don't think that you should look to these people as superheroes, because what happens is you get the superhero versus the supervillain. And that might sound like I've oversimplified it, but that's what people are doing. They're simplifying it down to that stage. Goodies and baddies. You know, it's like the 70s where you had cowboys and Indians in the movies and <laughs> one was a bad guy, one was a good guy. There's no nuance anymore. It's good and bad. And what is that? That's ridiculous. That's kind of ridiculous. So should you poke fun at it? Yeah, of course. And, and this, this is where it came from. This is where this point came from, was people were saying they were unhappy with my political position. They don't know my political position. You don't know if I'm a Biden or Trump supporter. You've got no idea. I can tell you right now, neither. They're idiots. But people were assuming, because I mocked Biden and I was a Trump supporter, if that's what they want to do, fine. But as soon as they put me in that category, what am I? I'm in the basket of deplorables category or something like that, when actually I've met some very decent Trump supporters who have very sensible reasons for why they vote that way. I've met some very sensible Biden supporters who have reasons for the way they vote the way they do. Of course they do. Everybody has their, their reasons, and it's a very complex thing. So what is that? Well, first of all, it's kind of sad that people can't see the complexity. And also, it's kind of funny. I'm sorry, but I, I just find it amusing. I find it kind of amusing. But again, not amusing in a, you know, I'm laughing at you because you're stupid and I feel better about it kind of way. Amusing and isn't it ridiculous how human beings are? You know, we're, we're a rabble. We're a giant rabble on this planet. Uh, <laughs> just trying to communicate with each other. And everyone always goes on about, you know, how bad the world is and all the conflict and things. I think it's a genius, a, a miracle, sorry, that we haven't wiped each other out yet. The, the sheer um, tenacity to which the, the sort of, that we hang on to these strict right or wrong views is crazy. Like, uh, uh, you know, I mean, it's a recipe for bloodshed. And, and I'm, I'm incredibly positive about the human species, the fact we haven't killed each other so far. Personally, we've had little wars, we've had some fairly big wars. That's true, I take that back, but we're still here. Um, so <laughs> we find in some way of communicating with each other, for sure. 
So, you know, why am I talking about this? Because politics is irrelevant, but at the same time it's relevant because it's one of the subjects that you can't choose to talk about. If I wanted to talk about something else, I don't know, I can't even think of an example, but if I wanted to use another example for why um, everything is kind of ridiculous or how things are quite funny, I would be able to use it, but you can't use politics. Why can't you use politics? You can't use religion either, can you, in a lot of cases? Because it means so much to people. Why? Because they've given it all of this value and, and worth that is, that is causing them pain and causing them to suffer. Again, don't be so single-minded in your view. If you're sat there thinking, yes, but who I vote for makes a difference. Yeah, I agree. Vote, make the difference in the direction that you see fit, but also recognize that ultimately it's kind of daft that the human race has got to this place. And how should we dissolve the heaviness of the situation and what's going on? Laugh at it, like I'm serious. Laugh at it, laugh at it. Do something about it, sure, laugh at it. Don't get angry, don't get upset. You're the only one that's suffering. If you're gonna get angry, you're gonna upset your crane, suffering for yourself uh, because of this. And, and this is the problem. I mean, Buddhism told you, didn't it, that holding on to anger is like holding on, holding on to burning coal. You're just hurting yourself. I paraphrase there a little bit, but that's basically what they're discussing. They're telling you how much you're hurting yourself. I can hear someone say the most offensive thing. It doesn't affect me. It doesn't affect me. And before you start with that, it's because you're white and male. Well, maybe. I don't know. I'm not sure that's the case. I think I'd be very similar if I was black and female, to be perfectly honest as long as I had the same kind of character that I have right now. Identity politics is the new ridiculous um, to me. I think it's kind of daft, but at the same time, I'm willing to listen to someone's viewpoint because that's their viewpoint, but I will still find it funny. I really will. I find it all funny. It's a big cosmic joke. Now, the other reason that it's all kind of daft is because people are zoomed in on something so small. They really are. There it is, right? Now, especially because um, reincarnation is a big deal uh, within the spiritual arts, and definitely it's also within my um, belief. Belief is an odd one, isn't it? I was talking to Adam the other day, and he said belief is for kiddies, and Adam Miser, and I was thinking, yeah, I agree with that, that's true. So belief is a funny word, but it's very much, um, you know, whether you believe or whatever it is, it's a part of my makeup, this idea of reincarnation. And it's certainly a part of the spiritual arts. And in fact, the idea of sort of immortality or enlightenment is kind of weird to even talk about, you know, Taoism or Buddhism at that level without understanding the process of reincarnation or, or talking about it as a concept. Now, if you, if you take that view, which I certainly do, and I'm not saying you should, but I have this view, if my life has been all of these hundreds, thousands, whatever, of reincarnations, and this is, they're all laid out like one linear timeline, like so. And here's one little speck of dust, one little blip right there of happening right at that moment. I'm not going to get stressed about that one little blip situation. And this is what happens. People zoom in, zoom in, zoom in, zoom in, zoom in, until they cannot see all of this around them. And, and consequently, that little event becomes so important um, that it becomes really problematic to them. And they cannot see... Uh, the humor in that situation, and ultimately that is trapping for them. They are trapped in that place, and then everything is difficult, you know, and then everything is suffering and everything is hard. So, you know, as a final point, you know, like, is it wrong, is it wrong to see the humor in everything? I think only if 
it stops you from doing what you feel is right. I think that's the issue. I think that's the issue. Now, you have a choice. You can either go through life and see something he's doing, there's a problem, deal with it. And you can see it through the lens of great emotional importance and density and weight. You can go through life like that. You can get everything done. Um, and you can come to the end of your life feeling you've been a very decent person and done the right things. You know what will happen, though? You'll carry all the emotional weight of that situation with you. You really will. And you'll suffer. And ultimately, your health will fail at the end of your life. That's what will happen. Or you can take option B, which ultimately, you find it kind of daft and kind of ridiculous and kind of funny. And find some kind of humor in it that may be positive, may be negative. Sometimes you share that humor. Sometimes you keep that humor to yourself. Humor at funerals never goes down very well. I've made that mistake. But... You can, if you carry that mindset with you, then you will find you will get through that life situation and you won't carry the density of that situation. You can still do the things you need to do. This is funny, this is ridiculous, but I'm gonna do it. This is kind of stupid, but I'm gonna deal with it. I have done exactly the same things as the person who's not finding something funny, got through my life to the end, not carried the weight of that situation, and then achieved some kind of <laughs> positive health and positive experience out of life. So then, the counter-arguments. But my life is really bad, and I'm experiencing these bad things, and you know, how can I find some kind of humor in this situation? Yeah, that's difficult, but it's not impossible. It really isn't. And the very act of finding some kind of humor in that situation, even though you might perceive it as really terrible, maybe it is really terrible, really is the route to freedom. Lao Tzu and, and Zhuangzi, Humility and wisdom, humor and irreverence. They talked about this. So, if I was told tomorrow that I was going to die and I had a very short time left on this earth, would I be able to find some humor in that situation after I got over the initial sort of reaction? Yeah, I would. I'm sorry, I would. I would still be able to find some kind of humor in that situation. And you know what it'd do? It would be liberating. It would cause some kind of freedom. So who are the people that are going to suffer? The overly serious. And if people can't separate the serious, or when they become less serious, they become less capable of doing things, that's a problem. But definitely the two don't rely upon each other. I always tell people that I teach at the beginning, if they say, what qualities do I need? Well, those. <laughs> Humility and humor. Those are the things you need first. If you're going to cry or you're going to laugh, you have to make a decision. It has to be one or the other. So you may, as well, you may as well go with that. Then on top of that, further qualities are, are laid You know, on top of that. I could go into all of the things I think are ridiculous about the human species, but it would make me very unpopular because I'm aware that some people take things a little bit too seriously. They take things far too seriously. They really do. And they're the ones that are going to suffer. Shame on them. Don't be humorless. Enjoy your life. Enjoy other people. Enjoy the world, enjoy everything that's happening, and find humor anywhere you possibly can. That's my advice.